Welcome back to Gal on the Go Unplugged. My guest today is Melissa Schools Young, author of the novels The Hive and Flood, and editor of Grace and Darkness and Furious Gravity, two anthologies by women writers. Her work has appeared in The Atlantic, Washington Post, Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, and more. In addition, Melissa received multiple prestigious fellowships, and she is a professor of literature at American University. Hi, Melissa. Hello, Kimberly. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an honor. Thank you for coming on Unplugged. Now, you have just like um, a really super cool story. So let's get into your journey. You have a deep connection to and a gift for weaving meaningful words. What author or book first sparked your interest in literature? That's a great question. When you are born and raised in a place like Hannibal, Missouri, uh, you are destined to read a lot of Mark Twain. So I I think I first was aware of the author, Samuel Clemens, uh, just by being in the community that uh, celebrates so much of his work. And I grew up with these stories of Tom and Huck, right? These very, this very, very famous friendship of Tom and Huck. And part of my influence and my desire to write came from wanting to see that story if Tom and Huck's famous friendship was female. So I'm influenced by Mark Twain, but I'm also very interested in um, in, in taking classic works and, and having a more feminist approach, um, a more, you know, inclusive approach. Um, so, I, I mean, I love rural stories. I love writers like Bobby Ann Mason and Jane Smiley. Um, I love Alice Monroe. I love classics, too. Um, so anything by, you know, John Steinbeck, um, anything by Charles Portis, Kent Harreff, these are foundational to not just my study of literature, but also what I was reading first and what I was influenced by. Um, to see myself as a person raised in a rural community on the page, that was surprising to me and and, and really eye-opening and influential in my work. I love that. And that's why you are a gal on the go, because uh, it's such a creative perspective to think of taking those classics in that way that you adored so much and, you know, putting that twist on them to have a different perspective. That's really um, very deep, very cool. I think readers want that. They want to see themselves on the page. I think that's the honor of a good book. Absolutely. You know, connecting with those characters is so much, I think, easier when you do see yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see yourself, but you also, I love to read stories that I can't even imagine ever living, right? Like that's also how you have access to other worlds. True. Imagination. (laughs) Exactly. Now, you won the Breadloaf Bakeless Camargo Foundation Residency Fellowship, which is a mouthful. (laughs) No, a lot of people that threw money into it. That's what that means. They all get their name in it. (laughs) That's how it ends up so long. That's right. Now, that fellowship entails a month-long residency in France, which is super cool. And in addition to that, you won the Center for Mark Twain Studies Quarry Farm Fellowship, as I mentioned. Now, what do those achievements mean to you and what is a life-changing or meaningful thing that you gained from each of them? 
So it means you get to go right for a month in France and look at the Mediterranean. I mean, that's who would turn that down. I promise I did some writing while I was there. Um, and it also means you get, I got to go to Elmira, New York, uh, which is, and Query Farm is actually the house that Mark Twain summered in. And he wrote all of his important novels there. So I got to occupy these spaces um, in which other writers had been before me. But I mostly what it means is, is, faith in your work, right? To have uh, a fellowship reader read your work and think this has value, right? This this we want to support. And I think that's um, that's huge to have somebody <laughs> acknowledge. Uh, the awards are not just validation, but they're also this gift of time. I mean, it takes a year for me to clear a plate for a week or a month of writing. And yet I know that someone is supporting me in doing so. So it, it means that my work is, is reaching an audience. Um, I think part of the most, I think the most meaningful part, actually the residencies, and because I went there and worked, I can write, I can write more in a month in a residency than I can in probably a year at home, right? Just, just with my normal life um, as a professor, um, I have kids as, as a partner, as just a woman in the world, it's it's really productive to have isolated time where I can hear myself think and I can hold a whole book in my head. And so that kind of meaningful validation for the book that's in my head is important. But in addition to the gift of time, it's the other artists you meet. Like you live with these people and you have life with these people and you're all working on your own projects, but you gather for meals and you exchange ideas. And it's amazing to me how people who just are willing to make things influence each other. So the the magic to me is not just the escape and the isolation, but really the fellowship with like-minded artists. And that's an incredibly powerful thing considering that most of the art that we create as writers is really in a pretty isolated space. To be in a space with other makers um, is probably the most valuable part of a residency. That's really cool and interesting to hear because, um, you know, I was wondering as a creative person by nature, right? Like um, that does make sense about the influence of, you, you know, you on each other, but I wasn't sure how like that designated space would affect you like meaning you know how sometimes you can't be like creative on demand let's say and if you're in that fellowship like at that place for designated time I was wondering how like does that work for you against you but it's always worked for me and I I go always to a residency or fellowship with a project in mind but I also am really open I am surprised every time by work that I create that I didn't know was in me. There is a magic to having, you know, an unstructured day, uh, a day that doesn't have an end to it. There is just as an artist, I think that's so important. Um, even when I'm writing at home and I, I look at a Saturday or Sunday and I think I'm going to write this day, I cannot make a single commitment for that day because it may be 4 p.m. when my, you know, my writing really starts. Um, and I and I have to show up for that. I have to be aware of of what I value. And a residency allows you to do that. Um, one of my favorite residencies is the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, and that's down near Lynchburg. And they have a fellowship program that brings together about 20, 22 artists at a time. And I am often the writer there. There's poets there, but there are visual artists, there are painters, there are composers, there are sculptors. And that's my favorite kind of residency is to have all of those different kind of art forms uh, colliding. Everyone's a maker. And it, it always shocks me how the stories overlap. 
I'm trying to tell a story about a rural community. And this person's trying to tell a story about a voice that was, you know, historical or this person's. It is amazing to me to look even in different art forms at how it fuels your writing. And it also is really amazing to have someone make your meals. (laughs) It is not a small thing. Please, someone bring me a salad and I will write you a short story. I work for food and it's not, um, it is really an honor to have just some of that, those those domestic chores that take up so much of our lives cared for. And, And it really feels nurturing. It feels amazing to have someone drop my lunch off and say, hey, what you're doing in there is important. Keep doing it. Um, that's to me that some of the value of residency also. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I do too. Bring me a salad, Kimberly. <laughs> you need some fuel to get I those juices to keep going and going now. Okay. So, um, you know, the fact that you're, uh, intermixed, right. With all these different creative types, have you guys ever fo- followed up with each other? Like after it to see, you know, like you knew what each other was doing in the moment during it and like how it turned out though, the final, like whatever the project is for that person. Mm-hmm. So it's both for me. I am amazed at the intersection of art and the way that a person you meet in residency, you find five years later in an art gallery, and you still have this magic in the moment that you share together. Um, and I've also had absolute best friends come out of it. Um, I'm a pretty loyal person. And if I decide you're my friend, you're just stuck with me. That's it. (laughs) And so there's also writers that you meet along the path that are on similar paths. That was definitely true in the Breadloaf Cromago Foundation residency. Um, There were at least five of us writers that were there who all had debut books coming out the year after. Oh, wow. It's just such an incredibly fruitful space. And so we, you know, many of us have been on that journey. We're now on second books um, and we're still following each other, checking in with each other, seeing each other at literary festivals um, and supporting each other. I love that. That's really super cool. And those people are lucky to call you a friend because you're such an amazing gal that, you know. (laughs) Thank you for that, Kimberly. Like I said, once I decide I like you and I like you, Kimberly, then you're just stuck with me. That's really, (laughs) that's the Midwestern roots in me, like that you're just stuck. That's it. Sorry. Sorry for you. (laughs) No, I I am very grateful and, you know, not sorry at all. You stated once that you had always written about your working class roots. And as you mentioned earlier, feminism and, you know, communities. What is it about those two subjects that dominate your thoughts and that fuel your writing? I think it's the unexpected. I think we don't expect progressivism to come from rural communities. And I'm always looking in my work in places where I can sort of subvert those expectations, Uh, specifically in the hive, the feller women, they share these values like grit and hard work and their investment in their community. Um, But they also disagree. They're fine disagreeing about those political institutions. Um, And to me, that's true when it comes to autonomy over their bodies too, right? So these rural values intersect with feminist values in a way that we think might be combative, but actually I think are really cooperative. Um, That surprises people. And so it's true that the label of feminism is sometimes problematic in rural culture. um, But I think that what we mean by equality in rural communities, what we mean by independence, what we mean by self-sustainability actually is feminism. 
And that I think um, surprises readers. They don't expect these things to be quite as compatible. Um, I try to see my characters really clearly with all of these kind of contradictions and struggles and, and, you know, give them as a writer, I'm, I'm looking at them with love and support, even if they disagree, but I want those disagreements about values to actually happen on the page. So they're more accessible for readers. Um, but I think I will always be writing about rural communities and feminism. Those are just things that absolutely speak to me in storytelling. That's a fascinating aspect about the rural component of it that I, I you just gave me like an aha moment. <laughs> um, it's pretty wild. And I love that you said this because I, I never thought of this ever before that you have characters that of course are like maybe your favorite and not so favorite, but those characters are important to your story, right? But you care for the characters, even those ones that might not be your favorite. That's like such a fascinating perspective also. I love that. Well, it's our job. I mean, if I can't write a character with compassion, I am not going to write them. I can disagree with them um, personally, but my job as a writer is to see their humanity. And if I can't see a character's humanity, I don't go near them. And it, it takes a lot of work as a human to be able to do that. Writing makes us better, but it's a lot of work. <laughs> it makes us better people in the world, but boy, it is a process. Well, especially a quality writer like yourself, you know, writing is one thing, but you're on a whole different level. So that's kind. Thank you, Kimberly. Absolutely. Um, now, okay, so being a fiction writer entails having a good imagination, and you obviously have an amazing imagination. Um, do you ever experience blocks when you're writing, like the stereotypical blocks? And if you do, what are some methods that you use to overcome them? This is never a satisfying answer to listeners. I don't believe in writer's block. I don't believe Ooh. in it. I don't. I don't. I think writing is work and it's discipline, and it's maybe a drop of inspiration, but I'm not precious about my process. I don't think you can say, like, this is where the moon has to be, and this is the candle I have lit, and this is my latte. Like, I don't I don't have that kind of time. Um, and so you have to show up. You have to show up. You have to be disciplined. You have to write badly. You have to make it better. Um, I use a lot of plot mapping and beat sheets, organized beat sheets. And that allows me in my process to say, you know what? I have an hour. I have 20 minutes. I have three days, whatever it is, I can break the work into manageable chunks. So I succeed more than I fail. <laughs> I think we set ourselves up for a lot of failures as writers, especially if we sit down and say, I'm going to write a novel today. Um, you can't do that. You absolutely cannot write it. But if you say, I'm going to write a 500-word character sketch of this minor character and one scene of dialogue, I can do that a day. And you just add those up and you end up with a novel, right? A bad novel, and then you make it better. But I do think you have to break it into manageable chunks. And I think we overwhelm ourselves, especially when we have a negative voice in our head that says, this isn't good enough. You didn't write enough. Why didn't you show up today? Like that voice is not something I want to write for. Um, Virginia Woolf says that you need to take that voice out. Uh, the angel in the house, you take her to dinner. You take her to dinner and then you murder her. <laughs> <laughs> a good meal first. Okay. A good meal first. Virginia Woolf. Goes back to a meal. Right? <laughs> but that, that just voice is not serving you. So why are you listening to it? 
Oh, well, that is just like mind blowing quote. I love that. <laughs> and you brought up an excellent point. Like, again, um, you know, I, I had never thought of this. You're right. Like, how many times does someone put off writing of any kind because they think it's going to be bad writing? Why not take the chance, get it out, regardless of what you perceive it to be as good or bad, you know, ideas and writing at the time and, you know, just move forward, keep it going. Um you know, that's a very amazing point. And yeah, because what if you write badly for two pages and then, my goodness, you write this amazing sentence. But if you didn't show up for the bad writing, if you didn't just have faith in the process, you wouldn't have ever gotten that to that good place. Um, and, you know, writing always surprises me. Um, that's a, It's a delightful thing when I don't know what my characters are going to do. And then someone just walks down the steps and it turns out they're having an affair. Like, I love that moment. Every <laughs> moment is really, really rewarding. But then the work starts, right? Like it's, it's great in a first draft to be surprised and to lead with curiosity and wonder. But most of it is just revision. Most of it is just the work of craft. And, you know, I, I, I think you have to show up for that. And how long, you know, you mentioned the sheets that you use. Um, how long have you been using sheets like that? And like in the process, when do you say like, this is not the sheets uh, point anymore? Um, it's my third draft. When I start doing plot mapping and I start um, my third draft, I figured out what I'm trying to say, what the book is about, who the characters are. And then I start dissecting it kind of scientifically into what are the different, and, and this is from Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. It's a it tips on screenwriting, but it works really well for novels. Um, and so then I'm creating a, uh, really it's a, a pretty, you know, it's a, it's not a pretty, it's very not pretty. Um, it is It is very messy kind of organizational table that shows me these are the, I think there's 13. These are the beats that I'm trying to hit. This is the emotional resonance of each of the beats. This is the point of view character who's speaking it. This is what's happening in the setting. This is what's happening in the external world. And I just create columns and I keep adding columns. And so it allows me to organize my writing so that when I come back to it, I'm, I'm zoned in on a column. Like today I have three hours. I'm working on Tammy's point of view in setting, in this scene, at the pageant. Like that's all I'm working on. And I can do that in three hours. I can't say I'm going to revise an entire point of view for this novel. That's just too overwhelming. And so I add columns for my agent's notes. I add columns for my beta reader's notes. I add columns for my editor's notes. Um, I do passes for language. I do passes for historical references. So these sheets actually create um, kind of a map in my of what's in my mind about the book, but it makes it more manageable so that I'm not overwhelmed. I'm not, um, you know, I'm not avoiding the page because it just seems like too big of a task. And then I, I feel love like that. I, yeah, I, I feel like I succeeded something. And who wants to show up for failure? Like we're, our job is to fail at it, but we also can, I think, encourage ourselves along the way in a more productive way. 
Absolutely. I love that positive mindset. And, um, you know, it's so cool to like get that behind the scenes perspective that I've never heard from, you know, Julia Cameron in a writer's in in an artist's way says you should date yourself. Like you should set up like, as if you were going on a date for your writing, like this is my treat and this is my favorite. And this is my, like, how would you treat a date? And then yet we show up for our own writing and we're just punitive and judgmental and I do not want to go on a date with that person. I'm definitely swiping not right. I'm not taking them. <laughs> and so I think we have to show up in that way and treat our writing, you know, with honor, treat our writing with, um, you know, let, let's make it interesting. Let's make it a date. I want to show up for that. I like that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know where the night's going to go. Let's be open to it, right? Mystery. <laughs> right? <laughs> Now, okay, so you're seeing like to your point of your the things you shared, which are like amazing things for, you know, um, I think a writer to take into consideration. Um, you're seen in the literary field as a respected emerging writer. And I, I was wondering, like, what does that mean to you? And where do you hope to take your literary career? That is already amazing. I want to write more books. That's it. Like that's my ambition. Um, I'm always just chasing the next story. I like to cheat on one manuscript with the other. When I'm out on book tour with the hive, I'm actually working on the third book. What I'm I have notes from being out on book tour with my first novel, Flood, where I was writing the hive. And so I very much like to or want to just write more books. I'm chasing the next story. Um, I also feel strongly that I am writing the best book that I can right now but that I have better books in me, right? So this is the best book I could write right now, but I'm always working on craft and I'm trying to have patience to build those skills. And I know that that will contribute to me being a better writer. Um, and I, I think you have to keep kind of feeding that fire with reading. Um, but it's it's not always easy to see that progress, especially as a writer. It's such a, a slow process that you can't really measure very well. Um, my goal as an editor is different than my goal as an author. As an editor, I want to build community and I want to shine a light, not just on a new writer who might be achieving their first publication, but also an established writer who has new work. And that to me is the honor and the goal of being an editor, right? I love to bring readers and writers together, create this community and kind of celebrate like the, I love that we throw book parties for books. Like, of course, it's a, it's a celebration. They are a book. Someone's created it. It's a magical thing. And we get to all show up and talk about it. So I love book parties. Invite me to all of your book parties. Every single one of them, Kimberly, I will be at. All right. I will have you to mine one day, hopefully. I can't and- wait. I will bring the champagne. I love the party. I love that we have cakes. We have cakes for books. It's so RSVP for you. To the- <laughs> so uh, that's another excellent point. You're just like uh, endless excellent points here because you're right. Like in the moment, um, you, you of course should be thinking you're writing your best book ever, but you also, to your point, why would you think though that is your end best book, let's say, because, uh, you know, you're hoping you're going to, of course, outdo yourself each time as you go on. So that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. I mean, I think we as writers can be our own worst enemy when we're perfectionists. 
when we hold on to something because we think it's not perfect enough. And you can hold on to it to the point where you can kill it. You can hold on to it to the point where you're not trusting a reader or an agent or an editor and you just self-sabotage her, you know, because it's better to say it's not good enough than it is to put it out there in the world and, uh, and, and, and listen, right. To a reader who responds to it. But I think we have to have faith that we are writing the best that we can right now, um, and do the work, right. Have the discipline, show up for it, revise it, revise it 20 more times, and then trust you know, trust the process and, 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 and not hold too tight to something that we, um, that we might actually make worse. (laughs) I've seen that happen with books too. Um, it's good to have your work out in the world and, and, and invite that conversation and to be open to it. Now, how do you know, or do you know, like, um, when that time is like, when you feel good enough that you're like, okay, I'm ready to release this. Yeah, when you sell it, <laughs> that helps a lot. <laughs> that helps a lot. Um, so that's it's a great question because some people really like a lot of feedback in their process. I don't. I write an entire first draft. If I haven't written 300 pages, I have absolutely no idea what this book's about or what I'm trying to say. So I hold pretty tight to my early drafts. I don't talk about them. I don't want anyone else's voice in my head when I'm trying to revise them, that's including my agent and my editor and my husband. Um, I want to spend, I'm really protective of it because I know that once I share it, I will start trying to please that reader. Ah, That's a danger for me. Um, I think it's a danger for many women writers is that we are trained to have, to expect or or to seek outside validation, uh, permission, And I very much am protective of my first drafts because I don't want that. I don't want anyone else in my head while I'm trying to figure this out. It's about my third draft that I will ask someone I really trust to read it. And those are different kinds of readers. I think if your family's reading it, their entire job is just to tell you you're amazing. Like that's it. That's (laughs) your whole job is to show up and say, you're the best writer. I cannot believe how amazing you are, mom, or whatever, whoever my reader is. Um, And then I think you have other writers who are really useful beta readers, who some are really not friends, some are professional colleagues uh, who are willing to say, this is what I hear from this story, this is what it means to me. Your agent's job is to decide if the book is marketable. That's a hard pill to swallow sometimes too, to hear from an agent. Um, And your editor's job, I think, is very different because we're trying to tell the best version of this story. And um, I've had amazing, I think editors are... The, the real servants of the literary world, uh, the work that they do, but you have to, as a writer, be open to receive it and then still have ownership and uh, authority in your book, right? It's also not a good strategy just to accept every single thing that an editor says um, because you're the one with the name on the book and you can't say, well, my editor made me change that. It actually is actually completely your responsibility. Uh, so it's a very cooperative process, but I'm pretty protective of my early drafts. So no disclaimers to the the editor's fault, (laughs) but I think that's, it's very bold and brave of you like to, you know, say like, this is my point. I'm putting it out there at this stage, you know, and it is what it is. But of course, you know, you're hoping the best because you work so hard. (laughs) Right. And every book of mine is at least 10 drafts. There's no question from start to finish. There are 10 different copies of that manuscript in my office. And, um, 
And I'm I'm grateful when it gets to a final draft, but I also never feel like I'm quite done. I still want to pull early books off the bookshelf at at the bookstore and say, I was just going to change this one little thing. (laughs) um, I I think that's That's wild. I know, but it's such a great sort of life lesson. Like that's in the past. That's in the past. Let's celebrate in the past. Let's move forward. Let's learn from it. You do have to trust your books. You have to love them. They're very much like children. You're very protective, but if you're, you're doing your job right, you have to send them into the world. You have to say, I have taught you the best I can do. I have made you the best version that I can create. And I have to trust readers. Now, okay. So you mentioned um, book tours, like when you, how much you love them and the ones that you had been on. And, you know, it made me think like, um, that's as a reader and a fan, right? That's like one of my favorite things. And I dread the day that we go digital and there's no book tours because it's just something I've enjoyed like my whole life. There's something so magical about reading something that you connect with and then getting to meet the creator of that piece. Um, On the flip side of it, you being the creator of that piece, what is a book tour like to you? Hmm. It's an absolute honor to meet readers. You have invited people into your head and said, this is a story I want to tell. To me, it is such an incredible gift when a reader says to you, I saw myself on this page. This is my story. You told it. Um, and so you you get that on a book tour at literary festivals. Um, but you can also find that in online spaces as well. You can find, you know, readers will reach out to you. Um, but people do like to have some connection with the author, right? They want to talk about it. People become, readers become so invested in your characters that they want to tell you um, everything that the character's feeling, or they they also are very fine telling you if they think that character should have made a different decision. Um, I've had a lot of readers show up on book tour and say, this frustrated me. Why did she do that? And I love that. I really do. I love when readers have ownership over my work. Um, and it's usually a resistance they have to, you know, a woman behaving badly, which I like to point out, but there's actually only one response ever to a reader, which is thank you for reading. It is an honor to have readers. And that is a full sentence. Thank you so much for reading. That's it. (laughs) Because you really can't, you can't manage or control the baggage a reader brings, you know, their experiences, who they connect with, who they don't, what makes sense to them. Once you hand a book into the world, and I think this is true of any kind of art, once you hang it on a wall, you're not in charge of it anymore. You're not in charge of their experience interacting with it. And a reader's experience, a viewer's experience interacting with it is absolutely authentic, even if it's not what you intended. I think it's really important to honor the reader and honor the consumer, honor the viewer in it. And really as a writer to let go of that kind of control, which you can't have, right? It's, it's um, you can't control their experience. I think that's beautiful and super gracious of you. Uh, and it's so nice to hear that that's your perspective. You know, um, as a reader fan, it's it's pretty wild to be able to hear like your side of it, what your perception is. Well, I feel very protective of my characters, but they still live in my imagination and they're just, they're fine and peaceful in there. They're okay. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, they're fine. I took care of them. <laughs> Um, okay, so the setting and inspiration, we're going to fast forward to your 2017 debut novel, Flood, where Hannibal, Missouri, your hometown that you mentioned, and the hometown of Mark Twain that you mentioned, 
In what ways did your hometown and Mark Twain influence your writing beyond like the obvious of, you know, probably the sentimental aspect of your hometown? Right. And that's, um, that's, I think, a real challenge. I think that when I'm looking back on something like my hometown or my rural roots, I think it's really important to approach it with curiosity and with kindness. Um, I think empathy is an actual writer's superpower. And if I'm not looking back on those spaces with that type of curiosity and compassion, uh, I really don't want to traffic in it. Um, And that doesn't mean I'm not critical. That does absolutely not mean I'm not critical. You can point out flaws and really pretty rough things and still be compassionate towards your characters. Um, But I think if you can't create those characters with real authenticity and celebrate glorious flaws on the page, I don't think you should really be writing them. And I have learned that from writing Flood and looking back at my hometown and from writing The Hive and looking back at what it means to be raised in a family business and and considering also Twain's influence on American literature and how iconic it is to be born on a place like the Mississippi River and to be a part of a culture that celebrated this type of America in this moment in history. And that's what Twain's work does. Um, But it's pretty timeless, right? Like a lot of the things he writes about, we're still talking about today. And Twain knew what he was doing. He had his autobiography, you know, he he made it released. He said we couldn't read it until 100 years after his death. He knows what he was doing. He's the original brander. Um, He was very good. Ahead of his time. And so Way ahead of his time. Mark Twain was a brand. Um, and and yet he had stories to tell. He had really important things to say. I mean, there's a reason we're still writing and reading about him. Um, and so I think it's important when we look back that we always do that with that kind of curiosity. Well, um, okay, so you mentioned The Hive, which is your second novel, and it came out in June 2021. And it was quickly optioned by Sony Entertainment. Um, The story's drawn from your Midwestern roots that you mentioned in which a rural family makes ends meet with their multi-generational pest control business. But when the patriarch passes away, the company goes to a distant cousin rather than the surviving women. It's a deep saga of sisterhood, life testing challenges, and ties that bind. Did you ever foresee or want one of your novels becoming a movie? Thank you for saying those kind words about the hive. Absolutely. Um, That means a lot. It means a lot to me that you see the book and you understand the importance of the story. Um, I don't write for the screen in mind at all. I am a literary fiction novelist. Um, I don't know that my talents lie in other areas of screen, but it is really an honor that Sony immediately saw the story and saw the importance of it in, in telling an American story. Um, but I, I don't consider that when I'm actually in the process of writing. Um, so the me, I, I mean, I know I wrote the hive because for different reasons beside the screen, I saw very much these political and personal struggles that are really rifting our hometowns, rifting our communities and our families. Um, I think they're part of my motivation is that these type of conflicts are occurring, not just on the dirt road where I grew up in rural Missouri, but on my campus, you know, in Washington, DC. These are these are really important things as a country that we're facing. And the Feller family endures similar threats Um, They have to find out what they have in common and to rebuild the foundation that has really been shattered by Robbie Feller's death. 
And so to survive, they have to, you know, really look at their differences. They have to investigate them in an authentic way. And they also have to consider what's the line, and that's really the question of the novel, what's the line between preparedness and kind of paranoia? Where does political violence, where is it justified in our culture in a really dangerous way? And how do we manage differences? And our political divides, I think, are becoming even more acute. So it was really important to me to write a book um, I can see how that translates to the screen because of the moment we're living in. And, and, but it, it was important to me to ask the question of the book, um, rather than think about its interpretation. To me, the screen is a very different artistic interpretation. And, um, I'm not in control of that. When you sell your option to Sony, they own the, you know, they own the story itself. And, and there will be other artists that step into that conversation, screenwriters and directors and actors that interpret it differently. And, you know, you hope that they are true to the story, but also sometimes, you know, sometimes it's better. Sometimes their interpretation is, is even more ambitious than what you could have imagined. Um, I knew that I wanted to write about the political divide, and I knew that I wanted to write a story that was about the recession. I knew that if we're going to talk about 2016, if we're going to talk about 2020, any of these conversations has to be backtracked to the recession in 2008 and what it meant in middle America, um, because it explains a lot. And I knew that that was an ambitious place to step into storytelling, but it mattered to me. I wasn't thinking about the screen, but I could understand why it, you know, can translate well. Well, I love, like, first of all, you know, I, I think that was, again, a very bold um, subject matter for you to tackle. And also, I think it's cool that you, you're just like, you know, it's interesting that you're like, okay, I get it. Like, I'm letting it go. It's a separate thing. Like, it's mine, but yet separate. And what they do with it is, you know, you're hoping they'll, um, you know, respect but, you know, you also recognize that it could turn out a little different. <laughs> it can be a different interpretation. Um, and I can I can respect that. That's the right word for that, Kimberly. But I um, would not be comfortable with a portrait of rural America that is stereotypical. And there are plenty of books that have done that. And that's not helping the conversation. And it's not creating more bridges in the political divide, it's actually dividing them further. And that I think would not be useful. I would be very disappointed if a production studio or, um, you know, a writer, a, a screenwriter saw that and wanted to um, perpetuate stereotypes rather than really dig into the authenticity. That would disappoint me. Yeah. So I, I hope you are not disappointed at all. <laughs> I trust the process. Surprise. <laughs> I'm willing to, you know, I'm, I love wander. So I'm, I'm okay to be, um, the screenwriters I've worked with so far, the, the, um, visions that I've heard so far, the pilot that I've read, all of those are really promising. I think they get it. And part of it is that they're using Midwestern writers. Um, part of it that the team has an authentic approach toward, you know, complicated place like Missouri. Um, that's a place that's difficult to be from right now. I bet that helps actually that relatable aspect. That's it, it's good that I don't know if that's by chance that they had, you know, people from that area or not, but I think uh, it's probably why the writers were interested in this story. Um, and when we have places that I feel are becoming dangerously more isolated and conservative, I don't think approaching them 
um, with blame is as useful as approaching progressives that are in the community that are doing the work and building them up, lifting them up and saying, no, 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 there's not just one way to be Midwestern. There's not just one way to be urban. There's not just one way to be a feminist. Um, but we're celebrating those differences, but also being really cautious and, um, you know, about what those boundaries are. If, if your political agenda or your book to screen intends to hurt people or intends to not, um, you know, uh, per, use progressive values. I think that's a real concern. That's to me a, a, a line, but it's also difficult with your, when your book is interpreted, right? There's no, only so much control that you actually have with other artists. Very true. I have to take your word for that because I do not speak from experience. <laughs> I believe that I will charm them. I believe that I will be integral to the process and have my say and, if I can tell a story well, I think it can be interpreted well. You know, there's always um, some concern about, you know, as writers, we do the best we can. And sometimes it's, uh, sometimes we, um, well, we always want to revise the page, even after it's published. <laughs> now, okay, so you have the role as an author. And, um, you know, as mentioned earlier, you're also a professor at American University. Um, do you see that those roles affect each other in any way? I think they feed each other. I think they're fuel for each other. Um, to me, it's it's just an honor to have a life where I get to live with words. Um, my job is reading and talking about literature. <laughs> That's to me the best thing you could possibly uh, make a living at. I read student work. I help students tell the story that they most want to tell. That requires a lot of listening. And I think those are skills that translate to writing on the page as well. Um, I think fiction just makes us better humans. And it's incredibly rewarding to be a professor who gets to see a student over two to four years progress in their writing and to see their characters develop because they themselves become a different person, right? They they learn critical thinking. They have a wider lens on the world because they're meeting people that are different than them. They ask more critical questions. Um, I think that teaching is a, it's a pretty public facing service and writing is a very private, solitary practice. But I think, you know, having both of them in my life to me keeps me very balanced. Um, it keeps me grounded. It keeps me healthy. I could easily be a hermit. Absolutely. hundred percent, super happy. Uh, leave me alone, but it's my family. It's my kids. It's my students that help me resist sort of these, uh, anti-social urges. <laughs> so you're way I'm too like, fun to be a hermit. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm telling you, I could really be alone forever and super happy with just my friends that live in books. Um, but I think being a teacher and being an editor, being a mom, those things help me balance myself <laughs> in a healthy way. So, okay, um, you've shared some amazing advice, but if you could give like, uh, you know, a golden nugget to an up and coming writer or a current writer who's maybe struggling, um, what is something that you would like to share and pass along to another writer? I think writers should begin with a question rather than an answer. I think that uh, for The Hive, one of my questions was, what's that line between preparedness and paranoia? Um, I was studying the preppers movement. And so I, you know, preparedness, apocalyptic preppers, people who are, are thinking about the end of the world. And I was asking members like Grace, the mother, you know, what what's the balance between fear and the future? 
right? How do you live daily with that kind of large weight about the apocalypse occurring in your mind also? Um, Does worry mean that you miss moments? Do you miss joy? Do you miss love? And how far will you go? How far will you go to save your own family and harm someone else? Those are huge questions to me that I was asking, and I think all writers should be asking. Um, You're writing your way to the answers. That's the ambition of the question. But I was also asking questions about sudden grief, right? Um, What does it mean to sort and reorder a life when someone suddenly dies? Um, That to me is what happens when the patriarch, when Robbie suddenly dies, it it makes the, um, the first part of the story about the family, but then it also allows the family to reorganize their structure. And that all begins with a question. So I think you have to, for me, I always start with three questions. One's usually about plot, one's usually about character, and one's usually about setting. And until I have those three questions or those three points, um, I don't really start writing. I have to kind of figure out what my own passions are uh, with those three points before. But I think starting with a question is a great place to begin a short story, a poem, a novel. Well, it's also possible. There's so many questions I have. I have so many questions. You can just walk around all day asking questions and which one will engage you and sustain you is the is is the question of the question. I love it. And it, it makes sense. Like you have a question that leads to another question that leads to another question. It makes so much more sense now where your flow would come from, you know? Right. And it's it's part of what I think keeps you curious as a writer. But it's also, I mean, I think that's the job of a writer is to be curious about the world, to wonder about it. If you already have everything figured out, I mean, I'm probably not interested in your answer. That does not sound, you're just you're just beating me over the head with your agenda. And that's not interesting as a process or as a reader. Agree. Well, okay. So, you know, you are, I can guarantee a favorite author and your works are favorite literary works to others, but what is your favorite literary work or who is your favorite author? Or I guess those could potentially go hand in hand. This is such a hard question for a reader and a writer because writers are readers first. We are absolutely readers first. Um, Favorite books I come back to again and again. Like I will reread Mother of Sorrows by Richard McCann. I'll read that 10 times. I've read it 10 times. I actually can quote it uh, at a dinner party with Richard uh, about a decade ago, very awkwardly. Um, (laughs) I... I loved when I read the collection Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout. I did not know you could link stories in that way. It it floored me. Um, but there's also I love epic stories, like really big, huge plot stories that have multiple generations in them, multiple historical narratives. Um, Hummingbird's Daughter by Louise Urea is one of my favorites for that. Um, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. And then um, my other favorite, probably my favorite epic novel of all time is um, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Just ambitiously covers so much time. And, um, you know, those are the kind of epic novels to me that when you're done with them, you're sad. You can't believe you don't get to live in that world anymore. Um, And there's a reason, you know, they're 400 pages. (laughs) It takes that kind of time to to create it. Um, But I return to classics a lot. I mean, and I'm always surprised by every time I read, like, Their Eyes Are Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. I learned something new. I've read it five times. And I still on my sixth read will discover something I didn't see before. And that's part of part of the joy of reading it with students also is that they will see things that you hadn't seen and they will teach you also. 
And do you share that in your classes? Like, you know, um, yeah, of course I can. Of course tell. I do. I'm there to learn. I mean, I I'm sure I'm their guide, but um, no, I think their perspectives on it are so incredibly fresh. And it keeps me fresh, right? It keeps me taking, um, you know, I, I swear The Awakening by Kate Chopin, there is a new book in it every single time I read it. But it turns out the book hasn't actually changed. It's me that's changed. And so when I show up, I see something new in the story every time. That's really cool. And I, I have to tell you, in your books also, uh, that makes perfect sense to me, your answer, because I could see that in your characters and development and the wanting to follow them also from a reader perspective. So it's nice that they live in that moment, but it's also, um, I think, respecting the reader's experience uh, changes right throughout it. Um, and some of these books are just incredibly timeless. I mean, um, you know, uh, I mentioned mother of sorrows, you know, Richard McCann taught at American university for so many years before he passed on and his book though lives, his book absolutely lives. And, uh, it's, you know, you get to sort of be with the writer again when you're in their work and that's a huge honor. That's a really cool legacy too. (laughs) It is. It's an important, I mean, I think it's all you hope for as a writer. Now, okay, so to that point of what you hope for as a writer, um, what would be your like dream literary achievement? Because, you know, to people, it's always different. It's not always sometimes about an award for someone or like, you know, um, the best selling title to someone because, you know, so what is that to you? I think I... I'm very lucky in that maybe I've already achieved it. It to me, to me, the biggest, it's not the awards, it's not, it's the work itself. It's the honor of the work. And it's when a reader stands in your line to have their book signed and says to you, you saw me. Like this was my voice. Um, and I saw myself on the page and I feel like my story was told. Um, we all want to be seen and writers want to be seen too, but characters want to be seen. Readers want to be seen. We all want our story to matter. And to me, that's the biggest achievement is when someone says, Hey, this was me. You got it right. (laughs) This was Uh, me. I love that answer. And it's like, absolutely not what I would have guessed at all. So (laughs) Well, listen, Kimberly, you can, you can send awards my way. You can send grants. <laughs> I'm not going to say no to those things, um, but I have received those things. I've won awards. I've gotten residencies. I've gotten fellowships and I've had readers. And I can tell you that having a reader really be grateful for your work and having a relationship with a reader is the most rewarding. That's the great thing though. See, to your point, you, you've, had um those honors in those various capacities so um you you know best right like it's not like you're like oh i got one or two of them but not the others and i'm guessing this is what it would be for me like that's mm-hmm. that's amazing. i'll take both like i said i will show up for <laughs> every book parties i really like wearing um sparkles and i really like champagne and cakes so i will happily show up to celebrate any book but the truth is what lasts longer is to have a reader really experience it that's amazing. And I will start planning that party also. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm here. I'm, my RSVP is yes. Just so you know, any book party, I'm there. <laughs> well, all right. Now I, I can't wait to get invited to a cool event. So that I can be like, all right, Melissa, come on. Uh, the answer is yes, Kimberly. The answer is yes. <laughs> We're going to go have cake. <laughs>
Um, well, you are just like so fun and I'm really grateful that you took time to come on the show today. Um, to learn more about Melissa and her incredible works of fiction, go to her website, melissascholesyoung.com and check out her IG page at Melissa Schools Young. Thank you so much for taking the time to unplug with me today, Melissa. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for your time. And thank you for this service. It's huge that you do this, Kimberly, for the writing community. It really means a lot. Uh, I'm very grateful, uh, especially that coming from you. Well, Melissa, rock on. Rock on, Kimberly. And to my listeners, remember, be curious, be kind, and be bold.